This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 117. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 117 you're listening to, and it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Lawton Audio. Back for another one. Here we are once again, meeting here in the world of podcasts. That's right. Today, my guest is Cesar Mejia from the Shelter Studios in uh, Los Angeles. And Cesar works with a, a huge range of people. Worked with Herbie Hancock a lot. He's worked with Wayne Shorter, uh, Sting, George Benson, Motorhead, Ozitlan Underground, Zach De La Rocha from Rage Against the Machine, Will I Am. A lot of pretty heavy-duty people. He's also an owner over at the Shelter Studios. He's also a teacher at Cal State Dominguez Hills, where he teaches audio-recorded courses for the Digital Medium Arts Program. And he's my guest today. So we had a little chat over Skype uh, from The Shelter Studios. You can check out his studio at theshelterstudios.com and you can read all about Cesar and and his crew over there and their philosophy and their gear and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. So that's that. So Cesar Mejia coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So it's been a while since I've actually mentioned this. And since I've mentioned, I think, uh, I used to mention it all the time, the whole social media thing and just reminding people to go spread the word. And if you haven't uh, done the social media tour, as I used to say early on in the show, please do so. We are on Facebook. We are at, uh, of course, facebook.com slash working class audio. We're also, of course, on Twitter at work class audio. So make sure you head over there. And we're also on Instagram working underscore class underscore audio. I know it's a long one, but I think you could find us. So yeah, social media. And we just hit a big benchmark here in the world of social media for those that are keeping track, but we just crossed over the 10,000 mark. We're actually today, as I record this, we're at 10,064 likes. So yeah. Also, if you haven't been over there, head over to workingclassaudio.com, the website. Uh, there you can actually get more detailed bios about all of our guests and there's bonus content and there's, you know, recommendations for various things that, uh, that I tend to like and uh, think are good deals. So there, workingclassaudio.com, spreading out in, to the far reaches of the internet. There you go. So let's talk about something that is not a lot of fun to talk about and something that really, for some, when it's brought up, brings about a lot of anxiety. And for others, it makes them roll their eyes. And some people, it's, you know, it's just downright boring. <laughs> I'm talking about retirement. Now, let's face facts. There's more and more reports every day coming out about how, at least in America, I don't know how it is in the, in other parts of the world and the habits of, of people in other countries, but by and large, it seems that Americans are not saving for retirement. Now, we as recording professionals, of course, know that we generally don't pay attention to that stuff, for, by and large, for the most part. Um, I know I had for a long time and I had a little bit of money saved in a 401k from a previous day job in uh, a pro audio shop, believe it or not. But, you know, being a freelance person, we rarely, rarely think about this stuff. So if you are a freelance person and you don't have a day job and 401k is not on your radar, I'm going to just make a pitch to you right now and say, it's got to be on your radar. It really does. Because, you know, while the idea of I'm never going to retire. I'm sure that crosses the minds of most of us. The idea that you're going to be, what, you're going to be 75, 85 years old, because people are living longer, with no savings, running a small studio in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we know the changes that have come through the industry and got us to the point we're at now. And, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle sometimes, but um, you certainly don't want to be at that that age where you have nothing to lean on. So, just get smart about it, folks. You know, start saving. These guys don't advertise on the show, but I've found great success with it myself. But uh, betterment.com, I think I have a link on the WCA recommends area of the page. If anything, if you're a person that doesn't know a whole lot about investing, and I'm one of those people, and you just want to put it in a place where it will grow over time, check out the Betterment thing because I think it's it's great. It's on your phone. You see it. You can set up auto 
uh, deposits into it. And it really, you know, if you just want to like set it and forget it, and let's say you're 25, you know, say if you save for 20 years, I don't, I can't do the math about it, but realistically, you're going to be in a far better position. Now, if you're like me and you're in your forties, you better get on it. So this is just my plea to all my recording brothers and sisters that you gotta, you gotta do it because there's going to come a time when you're going to be like, oh shit, I've just been spending all the money on gear and coffees and all that. And, you know, if you think about it, think of some of the money you've spent on stupider things. Well, just take that stupid money that you've spent and move it into saving for retirement, you know? So that's my pitch. I guess uh, I'm feeling, you know, as I approach 50 in a few years, I guess I'm feeling a little, I'm feeling a little edgy. And so I'm getting a little more aggressive about my investing. And I, while I do want to do audio for as long as I can, you know, let's face facts. We don't know what the future holds for us, for us individually, you know, you, whether it's, you know, uh, we lose our hearing or we get into a, a position where it doesn't allow us to do audio and you lose that, that ability to depend on audio. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. So that's it. I know it's not fun to talk about, especially on an audio show, but it's life and uh, it's reality. So dig into it, figure it out, whether it's betterment or one of these other things just figure it out because I want uh, everybody to be safe and sound for the future financially. So there's not a big struggle. So there, so that's my pitch. Yeah. That's my, that's my dad. That's my dad pitch. You better be saving your money, you know? All right, let's have a fun conversation. Now let's talk to our new friend, Cesar Mejia here on the working class audio podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your invite. Let's start off with a little bit of your history. I looked at your the people that you've worked with. You've worked with some pretty heavy people. You teach. You've got the Shelter Studios. What I want to figure out is how did recording become a part of your life? I, I started off playing music as a kid. You know, I mean, I was this kid who grew up with family members that played music. And, and my earliest memories of music is my uncle's, my, my mom's brother's playing guitar on her stairway to her house. That, that was my earliest like memory of music that I can remember. And then... As I got older and, you know, like played in school and school bands or whatever, played upright bass and I played electric bass and, and I, I made a band with a couple neighborhood kids and, and we were horrible, by the way, but it, <laughs> it was <laughs> it was still really fun. And then eventually somehow I ended up being the guy fixing the guitar player's tone. And I didn't even think anything of it. I didn't, I didn't even know what a recording engineer was. I mean, I, you know, I like, I, I had no clue of that, you know? So a friend of mine, a guy who, who became my best friend, his brother had a four track and he goes, Hey, can I record your band? I'm like, sure, that'll be cool. And, and he brought it over and yeah, I go, so he goes, can you guys play the music with no, with no vocals on it? And we're like, uh, yeah, well, how are you going to record the vocals? He's like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to overdub. And I was just like, I was like, what? And he showed me the four track and it was all these old little Tascam ones. You know, it wasn't even like a 424 or the 430. I forgot the, the model. It was an older one than that. And I was just amazed by that. And then, you know, I got more into like fixing tones. And I thought when I get out of high school and I, you know, my, my job, what I want to do is I'm going to be a guitar tech. That was like the closest I could think of what a, a music technology person would do. I didn't know about recording yet until a friend of mine in high school, we had to do a, a project for a class, like, uh, you know, we had to go pick a career. So we went to the college corner, what they call the college corner. And, and he went and went all the way to the S. And then he scrolled down and he goes, look, sound engineer. And I'm like, whoa, what's that? He's all, you know, you ever been to a concert? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, the guy in the middle with the big board movie stuff? He goes, that's, <laughs> that's what that guy does. He goes, I look at the dress code. It says none, you know, and he didn't want to cut his hair because we all had long hair back then. You know, now I got no hair. And back then I had long hair and I was like, but I just go, wow, that's pretty interesting. Like, that's kind of cool. And when I got to college, I was, I was an undeclared major because I didn't want to, I don't want to be, I didn't want to be a music major because I figured, oh, music majors, they just become music teachers. And I remember the way my music teachers had it really rough, you know? So I was like, I don't want to be that guy. And I was taking these music theory courses and I took, it was like second quarter of like, you know, like my first, my first year in, in college. And, and I asked one of my, my classmates, hey, what are you taking next quarter? He's like, oh, I'm taking computer music. I was like, what's that? He's like, oh, you record music using computers. And I was like, what? And I had already had a four track <laughs> by then. I understood what a four track did because a, a friend of mine had lent it to me. That same friend that that wanted to, that we went to the college corner with, he had lent me his four track. And, and I was like, whoa, that's kind of cool. But you, you, this was 1991. So there was, it was no digital audio. It was all MIDI sequencing, you know? So, but 
So I go, wow, can I go see, can I go to your classroom? He's like, yeah. He goes, I have a little session today. So they had three stations and station one was a Mac Plus, the old Mac Plus, right? With performer, before it was digital performer and a Korg M1. That's all it was. And station mm-hmm. two was the same, the same setup with like an EPS sampler or something like that. And then station three was like a full blown, not a full blown, but it had like a, like maybe like a 16 channel input desk. And it had a bunch of like outboard gear and things like that. So it was a little bit more advanced. And and I remember that I was just fascinated by that. And there was this, there was this one Filipino uh, kid that was in there with me. And 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 this is how naive I was. I'm I'm gonna say this on your on your show, but you know, I had I had never like left the space out of my out of like my surroundings other than to go to Mexico to you know visit my family. I had never traveled outside of like that area of my of my wife was probably going to hate that I say this cuz she goes you always sound like you're so naive, you know? Like why did you why do you say that? I go so I'm speaking the truth. Like I didn't know anything about that back then. So I saw this kid and he was Filipino and his last name was Reyes and I was like, well, "Where did you get that I, like where are you from that your last name is Reyes?" He's like, "Hey, the Spanish invaded the Philippines too." I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it now." So <laughs> So he became we became kind of cool friends because like we, I, I don't know if that was a connection or not, but he was doing a lot of house music. What's funny is that I grew up listening to a lot of like dance music from one brother and then like the rock and the heavy rock from the other brother. So I had those both influence, but he was doing house music. And at the time, I remember I would be, I would go out with some of my friends that were non-musicians. I go out to these house parties with them and I would go hang out with the DJs because I wanted to see what they were doing. And, I, and so when I took this class and this, and this guy was doing house music, I was like, hey, can I just go be a fly on the wall in your session? He's like, why do you want to do that? I go, I want to see how you how you make house songs, like house tracks. And I would see him and he would only make like, you know, four to like eight measure loops. And he, you know, he like, he like step in her kick drums and hi-hats and he had these really cool grooves going. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. So I would try to do that, but I, I would fail miserably because I was used to being a musician in a band where like the drummer starts playing something and you start grooving along and the guitar player does something. Everybody's feeding off each other. It was never like, here, you do it all you know, on a sequencer, you know? And so eventually I was like, man, I, I need to get myself a computer. And then my professor at the time was selling his old, he was selling a Mac Plus with Performer on it. And I bought it. And then a friend of mine ran into like a D50 that he goes, hey, I'm not using this. You want to borrow it? And then my best friend had a, had a, like a little boss drum machine. So I started making, I started making house tracks. But the funny thing is that right before I started doing that, we had to present a project in class and mine was so bad that when we went to present it, the professor asked us, who wants to go first? And I raised my hand up and I was like, I want to go first because I figured I'm not going to go put this horrible song in front after somebody else's song that knows how to do something, you know? So I was like, I'll just, I'll just <laughs> let them have it off from the beginning. <laughs> so it was funny. So I played this horrible song and then, and then I took what I, what I, what I learned from, from this guy making house tracks and I applied it to doing something on my own. And then... I made a house track and I presented it and all of the class was like, all right, cool, you're learning. So eventually it, it came into like, okay, you know what? I want, I want to do more of this. So I found out about an, another, another university nearby. I ended up teaching there eventually, but I went there to learn about recording because it was a real recording school. And I ended up going there and they had like a full-blown 24-track studio. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in heaven. This is going to be cool. And I, and I got along with one of the professors there really well, who was like, oddly enough, he was more of a MIDI synth guy than he was a recording guy. But he knew how much I was into recording that he's like, you know what? Like in the summer, we usually close the studios, but you know, we're going to lend it to you. So I spent one summer like just, and this is before the internet. I couldn't Google how to make, you know, a kick drum sound like the Deftones records. Like you couldn't do that back then. It was like, (laughs) you had to sit there and go, whoa, how are they doing that? And you had to, I would experiment. And then eventually I started getting the hang of things, you know. And then I just remember recording so many bands with that summer. I must have recorded like in a three-month period, I probably did like maybe eight or ten bands, which is, to me, was unheard of, you know. I mean, like none, none of my friends that were even, I mean, there was very few friends that were into recording at the time that I knew that back then. But like I was just like cranking them out and I was like, yeah, this is cool. But I, I did it because I wanted to learn how to be better at, at, at being, you know, re- at recording. And it, eventually what ended up happening is that the guy who was the chair there, um, his name is Rod Butler, who passed away a few years back, unfortunately. But he would he would see me there all the time. He's like, "All right, Caesar, you know what? You're gonna record the jazz band." And I was like, uh, "I, you know, I was thinking to myself, I just record like punk punk bands and metal bands. Like, what do I know about recording a jazz band? You know?" But I was like, "Okay, cool. I'm I'm into it. I'll do it." And and it's funny because the things that he taught me 
that he wasn't a recording instructor. He was a he was a music professor, but he taught me more about like studio etiquette. You know, like you know, we we'd be in there. I would be in the recording. But we would be recording the band and he would stay as a producer. He would stay in the control room and he'd have the band, you know, do the take. And I would listen low because, you know, I didn't. I By then I had already learned that if I listen loud all the time, I'm just going to get tired. So yeah. I, I listened low or low enough so I could make good decisions, you know. And then he would and then when the band would come in, I would play it back. And, you know, so he would tell me he would come up to me and whisper in my ear, Caesar, you know what, when they're in here. Just that's the time to crank it up because they're going to feel good if the music's loud. You know, he goes, musicians tend to be that way. They just they just want they want to hear themselves in a in a in a in like a big dosage of it. You know, because especially if the, if the take is good, you know, it's going to give them the good morale that they need to do even a, a better take. So those are the kind of things that he taught me about, you know, which is the kind of thing that's funny that it's kind of hard to teach that. In, in a recording school, I mean, I try my hardest to do things like that. And I, I try to put them in those situations, my students in those situations of real life kind of thing. But that was really cool that that I got that from from a pro professor that wasn't even involved. I mean, he was involved with the studio part of it, but he wasn't a recording instructor. And I just thought that was really cool. And and that's kind of how how my, you know, my world started with recording. It, you know, it was just from really like, I would, I, if you want to call it like novice or innocence to like, you know, eventually recording a, a jazz ensemble, which I had never, I never knew how to do. I mean, he kind of taught me like the little basics of it, you know, and it was just more about like, you know, about listening, you know, the, the instructor that I had there, which is more the, the lab instructor. He also taught me a lot about, you know what, Caesar? You, you, you know you, you need to you need to learn to use your ear because I would always ask him. Uh, I, his name is Brian Kehu, and I I love this guy. He's like he's like one of my heroes. Brian, who wrote the Beatles? Bro? Yeah, that was my that was my that's the guy who really taught me about recording. He's he's like I see him at Nam every year, and I was like, let me buy you a drink. He's all right, buy me a drink, and I mean, I, I love that guy. Like, you know, he's one of those guys that's like really taught me like to look. About, or, or to even like to listen in a different way because I would ask him, hey, Brian, if I want to record a trombone, what mic should I use? And he, and, and he would say, well, that depends. What do you want it to sound like? And, and when he first told me that, it's like I saw God for the first time. Like, whoa, dude, like that concept to me was like so like I had never thought of, of listening that way. So from then on, you know, he would always tell me, hey, when you don't have EQs, man, move the mic. And if that doesn't work, then change the mic. And, and I did that for a really long time until, you know, I was able to kind of understand how, how, how the mic works and how the placement works and all that. And, and now I'm a big, like, you know, I tell people I'm a self-proclaimed tone junkie. Like, I, I'm into tones and, and I love doing that, you know. Like, I, I, I dig that. But I think a lot of it started from, you know, the simp like the, the really beginning simple things that Brian taught me just by saying, hey, move the mic or you, what do you want it to sound like? Think about what you want it to sound like and then you'll have a better chance of, of getting it to sound that way, you know? You teach now, I can't remember the name of the school. Can you remind me? Cal State Dominguez Hills. I bet you'd agree with me on this. When you're in the moment and you're, and you're learning, you're, you're in the moment of recording and those little chunks of knowledge come your way from whether it's your own personal experience or somebody in the room teaching you something, whether, you know, the band professor or whoever it is, that's when you really absorb those things. And if you're sitting in a classroom, I find it, it can be a challenge to teach that, teach those nuggets of wisdom because you're just in the classroom and it, all this information is being thrown at you constantly. When I first started teaching, you know, I, I taught just what they what we call a you know like a recording lab or like so there was like there's a lecture portion of it and then there's the there's uh the lab which is where or or in my opinion i think it's where the real learning takes place you know it's like it's like i always tell the students i go look man learning the theory is really cool but it's a, it's it's the equivalent to like driving you can learn that book all you want but until you get into that seat and learn how to make a left turn or a right turn or or you know drive in reverse, that's when all those things are going to make sense and you're going to be learn to apply them. So I think they both go hand in hand, the theory and all that goes hand in hand. And, and, and like I said, when I, when, when I first started, that's what I would teach. So I would, you know, I would teach kind of just like the, the very like, okay, signal flow. Let's just work on signal flow. And as time went on, they, they started assigning me more. Okay, well, you know what, Caesar? why don't you teach now? You know, why don't you teach a, a synth a synth course lab too? Okay, I'll, tell, I'll teach the synth lab too. Okay, now Caesar, you know what? Let's teach. Uh, you know, why don't we teach you to put um, a music production course? And that, and I think those courses like music production, and and we teach a, a mixing and mastering that I teach. I teach with another guy named Joshua McKendry. He's one of the other instructors there. Th those courses are are to me where I try to put more of the real life scenarios in it. You know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my students are going to hate that I'm saying this, but you know, a couple of weeks ago, they had to turn in like some of their first mixed projects. And, and some of them, I, I think sometimes they feel like, oh, this is easy. I can do it. But then, then they play it and I try to give them like real world critiques. I'm sometimes a little too harsh with them because I because I feel like if I'm I'm not not they don't pay attention they won't take they won't take it as seriously but I always tell them I go look man I go in the real world they might not tell you as as harsh as I'm pro- maybe putting it but they're gonna the the client is gonna expect you to fix it and that is way is way far from fixing something right now it's like it's not even you shouldn't even present it that but obviously you guys had. X amount of time to work on it and you're just working on it, you know, a day before, that's not going to cut it. I mean, you guys are not at that level. So I, I, a lot of it is just, is about trying to, I try to be as real life as possible with it. You know, sometimes like, I know some students kind of get turned off by it, but I think others are like, oh, like, I'm, I'm glad you told me that. And I, I think while they're in there, they just feel like, oh, Caesar's, he's just about yelling at us. He just wants to yell at us and make sure that, you know, he's like grinding down on us all the time. But I think after they graduate and, they, and, and the ones that continue to do it, they always tell us, like, you know what? We always tell each other. We always ask ourselves, what would Caesar and Josh do? What would, or what? What did they? What did they tell? Oh, I remember they said this about that this would happen, and I think it helps them out in the end. I mean, I don't know if they necessarily see. I think I was the same way when I was a student. You didn't, you didn't see it back then, and then you're like, oh, like I remember when I was there, we had to take a choir class, and I was like, why should I be in there? Because we had to take a performance course, you know, and since. We weren't technically musicians. The only place they could put us was in the choir. All these recording guys were in the choir, 25 of us, you know, singing all off key and out of time. And I remember those classes today are probably some of the ones that I use the most. Like, you know, when singers are not, are like, especially a young singer who doesn't know how to control their voice yet. The courses that almost didn't seem to like, that I felt, at least for me, I was like, what am I taking this course for? are the ones that I end up using now. And I think that's what happens with some of our students that I don't know if they see it or not, but I, I know that I try to be real, as honest as I could with them about how things are. And, and when they are when they do good, like we tell them, look, that's exactly how what everybody should strive to do. Like this, this person doing this, you know, that's the role of you. I go and I go, because how many, I, I always ask them, how many of you guys want to do this for a living? And they all raise their hand. I go, well, then you got to put in the work because right now the work you're showing me isn't doing that. It's tough. Because you and I both have like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty thought process. And we can go back and in our backgrounds, we can analyze all the different situations and say, oh, right, this was a learning experience or this was how I actually came to learn this particular technique. To try to teach anything like audio to a new student, I think if if there was a way to get them to understand or to have like almost an early 2020 Right. Type, yeah. Type experience so that they could uh, know that what they're going through is not going to last forever. And right. That they are going to get better. Yeah. It's it's like trying trying to transport your your experiences into them. Right. I, I, I don't know how else to. I'm not articulating it well, but no, no, I'm no. Just, but I, I, I mean, yeah, it's exact. I mean, you're you're saying it correctly. I mean, that's what it is. I think a lot of it is about trying to give to me the way I look is like I try to give them as real world scenario as possible like I you know I don't I I don't I try not to like dilute it that way we're like oh it's it's okay yeah I go man I go those are the comments that your mom's gonna tell you oh that sounds great like you I'm trying to be real with you I tell them like you know you don't want you I mean do you want me to be honest with you or I always ask them because sometimes they look at me like some of the students will look at me like, why are you like, it, it seems they're not saying that, but I think the look in their eyes is more like, why are you saying that to me? You know, but I'm, and I, you know, and I think it, it's hard, I think, because if, if never, no one's ever critiqued you in that way. And, and you know what, and I've worked with some, I've been fortunate enough to work with some, with some really cool musicians in my, in my lifetime. And I'll be honest, they've been probably more kind to me than they have harsh, but the message is still the same. They're like, why did you do that? You know? Why did you do that? Like, why? Who told you to do that? And I was like, Oh, I just assumed that that's what it was. So we can fix it however you needed to. You know, that's my response now because you're more confident in it. But if I was if I was 19 years old and that same artist told me that, I'd be like, Uh, I, I don't know. You know, like. It, so I think a lot of it is, is is me trying to be real honest with them, and and I think sometimes they get it, and, and it, it, it takes a while. You know, like you know, it's funny because right now, like. Like I, I don't really get a hold of all the students until like like their second year around because they're kind of split up into like different sections of the course, you know. So those that know me, by the time they're in the second year, they're like, "Oh, that's just the way." Oh, okay, I get it. So he's gonna expect us to be 
this much on top of it. And the ones that don't know me, they're like blown away sometimes like, whoa, what's wrong with them? You know, but I, I just try to be real. I mean, that that to me, that's the only way to do it. And I know sometimes it's it might be hard and 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 it still is difficult to try to teach those teach them those things, because sometimes, you know, they just feel like, oh, you know, he's an older guy. You know, he's what does he know? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, OK, whatever, you know. I mean, that, what, that's that. What I find frustrating is when I, I I taught for a while, and there's two things out of that teaching experience. When you have students that are really into it and ask great questions, yeah. and they sit in the front row, and you're yeah. like, you can tell they they have the eye of the tiger that they're yeah. hungry for. And it. Yeah, and they have but the passion. But then you get the students in the back, and for the audience, I'm oh, playing on man. my phone. Yeah. You know, they're playing on their phone. They're not listening. They yeah. don't care. You know they're not going to yeah. last. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I, you know, like, we we have a policy now in, 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 our, in our, me, me and me and Josh do that. You can't have phones in our class. If you want to take a picture because we drew a diagram, then take out a piece of paper and redraw it. <laughs> like, I, I always tell them, I go, look, man, they're... they're, they're there's there's a connection between your hand, the pencil, and then you you writing that your brain is gonna remember that. Then you typing because your finger does your brain doesn't doesn't remember tapping. It doesn't know where it's going. It's just tapping on a screen. But by you physically writing something down, it's gonna help you. And it, I mean, some of them I think it, yeah, I think it just depends on how much they want it. That's really why I always ask them. I go, look, this will come from how much you want it. I go, look, when I was nineteen, like. I still feel the the same way, you know, like I still want to do it all the time. Like I just, you know, I have to do it. It's like part of who I am. Like if I don't have this part of my life in it, I would, I don't know what I would do. I I, I don't know, you know, like you want to feel that you have, that's what you want to have to have. And, and some of them are like that. And some of them eventually get there, you know, uh, and some well, of them, maybe they don't, I don't, you know, it just, it's hard. Well, let, let's talk, uh, let's talk about you okay. now and make the transition. I want to talk about the shelter studio mm -hmm. studios. Tell me about that and, and your involvement with uh, Louie and there's somebody else involved there as well. Yeah, well, there's actually, uh, there's a few guys. Um, there's a guy named Mike Galus who's actually here somewhere in the, in the room. He's somewhere here. We actually get together on, on, on Friday sometimes and we have these just like writing sessions. And lately we've been doing a little bit more because we were working with these people from London. But yeah, there's actually a, like a little like, I hate to say that word crew because it's so cliche, you know, like the crew, you know, but it is technically that. It's a, it's a few. Louis one of them. Louis Gonzalez is one of them. Michael Luce is another. Uh, there's a couple other, other, other few people, Tony and Marco, that actually, when I first started this place back in like 1999, it was more of like the clubhouse. It was really kind of like the, the, the structure's the same, but it was all run down. You know, like we had a carpet in here and too many drinks got spilled. And it was just the clubhouse. And eventually, as I started doing more and more work, I would get clients that were more serious. And like they would come in and go, oh, OK. And and that's when I started noticing, like, you know what? I, I, I can't do anymore. If I want to be serious about this and take it to the next level, then, you know, we got we got to I got to do something. So I, I, I talked to my business partner at the time and uh, his name is Carlos Montes. And and I go, hey man, you know what? Let's let's kind of let's let's try to restructure this place so it looks nice because it's it's too it's it's just really beat down. So the plan was to just kind of redo the floors and redo the patch bay. That that was our plan. But then you know we started taking stuff out, taking stuff out, and 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 a guy named uh, Dave Hampton came by. He's a really good studio designer. He's actually worked with like he's worked with Herbie Hancock and and Prince and and a lot of these big big guys. You know, big artists that he's worked with and. He came in. I go, hey, man, can you check it out? Because, you know, he's like, he's like, oh, well, you know what? You might want to do this and do that. And I go, you know what? I really wish I had a, like a little machine room. He's all like, well, then why don't you do it? Like, you will cover this wall and do this and do that. And you can have it. Like, he's like, right now is the time to do it. You have everything out. Do it. So at that point, me and my business partner were like, you want to just go full in? And we're like, yeah. So it took us a year to like redo the whole. So the studio was down for about a year. So I was just having to work out of other, other places that that I was able to work at. But, you know, I mean, like, eventually once we did it, like, it became like, it's a, it's, it's technically our hub, you know I mean? I work out of here a lot, but I work out of other studios a lot. And, you know, like, I'm always, like, in and out. I, I build studios for other studio for other, for other people, other schools, you know, things like that. But, but, but the Shelter Studios is most definitely a hub. It's kind of like our little, like, it's our little, like, playground, if you want to call it, you know? I mean, it is a mm -hmm. clubhouse. You, clubhouse seems to, when I say that word clubhouse, it just seems like so not serious. So I'm like, I'm not going to call it that anymore. It's it's our hub. That sounds a little bit more, you know, up to date. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it is most definitely our hub. And we've, we've done a bunch of work out of here. I mean, the place is kind of small, but we, 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 most, we mostly, we make it work. That's for sure. I mean, we've done 
tons of stuff out of here. You know, like people like I've done drums out of here where people are like, oh, where'd you do a man? I'm like, uh, in that little ISO booth we have right across the way, you know. And But lately in the past, maybe like three, four years, it's been more of an overdub mixing room in here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I used to master a lot more, but Louis gotten so much better at it than I have. I'm like, hey, man, here, just send it to. There's two guys that I use, a guy named Pete Lyman. From, oh, I know Pete. Yeah, yeah, Pete's my friend. Ah, that's my that's that's my homeboy. <laughs> and 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 Louis Gonzalez. Those are the, the two guys that I use for all my mastering stuff. Like I don't, you know, like I don't use anybody else. Like those guys, those two guys are are great. One one is just a lot cheaper, so you know, depends on where the budgets are at. <laughs> Cesar Mejia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's that time we're going to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica for a bit, and I just want to remind you, you know. If you're looking for headphones and you're looking to outfit a studio, Audio-Technica is doing this really interesting thing, which is pretty economical. And they're doing these packs where basically, for example, they have the ATH Pack 5. What it is, it's a set of five pairs of headphones, but the pack includes one pair of ATH M50Xs, but it also includes four pairs of ATH M20s. When you're putting together a studio, there's a lot of expenses and you know, sometimes we can't, we can't go top of the line on everything. So this is a way to get a bunch of headphones, a bunch of good headphones at a good price. Uh, and so the ATH Pack 5 is one of those things. They also have an ATH Pack 4, which is $199. And that is, of course, my favorite headphone, the ATH M40X. One pair of those with three pairs of ATH M20X headphones. So look for these packs that Audio-Technica is doing Uh, especially if you're a smaller studio or maybe you're a bigger studio and you just need to add to the collection of headphones and you don't want to spend a bunch. Sometimes infrastructure spending is not, you know, everybody's favorite thing, you know, mic stands, cables, and uh, headphones. You want good headphones and you want inexpensive headphones, headphones, but you don't want cheap-ass headphones. And so this kind of helps you get to that point where you can get good quality lower prices on the headphones and take care of the clients in that respect without blowing the budget. So check it out at audio-technica.com, these ATH headphone packs. Yeah, obviously it's under headphones. Well, let's get back into it with Cesar Mejia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Is the shelter in a home or is it yeah, in it's, a... It's in a it's, it's in a residential. It's in my, in my parents' property, you know? So what happened was that when I started this place... It was, you know, a, a few years before, you know, I got married and all that stuff. So it was well, actually, yeah, it was in, in 99. So it was probably about maybe, you know, four or five years before I got married, you know. So we started this place. And then when I moved out and I, and I bought a house with, with my wife, she's like, oh, are you going to bring the studio here? I was like, no. You know what? I kind of want to have somewhere to go to like do work because I go, if I, if I have it at home, you're never going to see me. Like I want to live in that in that place, and I just needed to have that distance, you know. And 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 it's worked out for me. I mean, I I dig it, you know. I can be loud, and I, you know. I have I have a little setup at home in my garage, and I'm like, oh man, I can't crank it up. I can't I can't do the things. Like I feel so uncomfortable doing things there, you know. I mean, like I have a console in my garage, and I don't I don't use it. It's like I think the the way it feels for me is like like when an artist or, or or a musician is writing a song and they don't want to let anybody else hear it yet. They want to just have that confined space of like, let, let me get it to where it's at and then I can show it to you. That's kind of the way this place has become for me. Like I can just go and not think about anything else and just just do my thing. And that that's kind of what it is. But yeah, it's most definitely in a residential area. So that's kind of the cool thing about it, that it's the, the vibe is really cool. Everybody that comes here, they're like, hey man, I really like the way the, this place feels. I was like, yeah, it's just, there's no pressure. It's just, Let's just do it. That, that's the thing about studios. You know, they can be so well-equipped, architecturally superior in many yeah. ways, yet they can feel so stifling at the same time. But yeah. you take kind of a, a more homey, humble situation. Right. And it just kind of, I, I don't know, it breaks the ice in some ways for some artists. It's like, oh, I feel at home. Let's, I yeah. can cut loose and do my yeah. thing. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it, a lot of them like it because, you know, and not, not only that, there's a window that lets the sun in and they can go outside and, you know, like, like, you know, there's a really good friend of mine. His name is Danny Lozano. He's like, oh, he's like, he's big in the whole land jazz thing. And, and he's a great producer, great musician. And, and we were, we, we, in the last few years, we've been working on a lot of projects together. And, and one of the things that we would do is, is he would come in, we were doing it in the evening because that's just the way it worked out better for our 
personal life and, you know, like, okay, let's deal with the family in the day and then we'll come in in the evening and work on mix this record. And the first thing we would do is we'd sit outside the place and we'd smoke a cigar and have a coffee. And that was our thing. And we would sit there and it would take like, you know, we wouldn't spend all day with it. We'd spend, you know, 30, 40 minutes and we'd go in there and we'd knock it out and we would just be so focused on just doing things. It, but it has that feel of like, hey, I can step outside and there's like real life going on. You know, it's not like I'm secluded from the world. And I know that's that's one of the things about working in bigger studios that although they're fun, you know, I was, I was out at Sunset Sound a few weeks ago and it was a great session that we had there. But, you know, even if you go outside, you catch some sun, you're like, man, this kind of feels like I'm blocked inside of this whole area. Like I can't, I mean, yeah, I can easily go out and walk outside, but it's not the same, you know? I mean, and, so, and don't get me wrong. I, I love Sunset Sound. That's one of the, that's one of the studios I do like because it's, oh man, I hate to say this, but I guess the, the proper word would say it feels vintage in there, right? Like, but it's <laughs> a cool feeling. Like you go in there, you're like, man, this place just looks old, but it's cool, you know? Yeah. You know, it's and, got and the, you, you sense that history. Yeah, you sense it, you know? So it's like that place and, Another place that I, I work sometimes is is, is NRG, you know, but th- those places, they, they have vibe. They, they're completely different from each other. The vibe is completely different. So sometimes you're like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea to take a client to that one. It might be better to go to this one. Or, you know, it just depends. I mean, to me, studios are all about vibe. If, if I was a multi-billionaire and I could just spend money wildly. Right. Uh, you know, I keep buying those lottery tickets. Maybe oh, that'll man. happen hey, someday. Me, me too, you know, because <laughs> I'm addicted to gear. <laughs> well, I, I think at some point, you know, like if I, if I, if money was no object, I would create different studio vibes rather yeah. than trying to create, you know, specific, yeah. you know, acoustic architectural right. designs and use that to cater to different people. Cause some right. people, you know, it's like up at Prairie Sun, up in here in the Bay Area, you know, there's a barn on the property and that's, that's where Tom Waits had recorded, I think a record or two. Right. And it was just, you know, it was a barn. Yeah. It's just different, you know. You know, you're not you, gonna, know you know, you know, has a place like that is the guys from Burl Audio. Will 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 Kana is, is 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 that's the guy that I know. There's another guy there, but they they they're built their their studios in a, is is in a barn too, or their or their whole like property where they do that is in a barn up in Santa Cruz. So that I think I think things like that are the things that are like to me vibe is just so much more important. I think it brings out better performances. Like the gear is cool. Like you know, trust me, I, I'm a gear junkie and I'm. You know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed tone junkie, but that doesn't matter if the player can't perform right or can't feel right about their playing, you know, like that. You know, it, it's funny because that's one of the things we ask our students. We ask them, what's the most important thing in a recording? They're all like, well, the microphone, the mic pre, the console. And they're naming all these like technical things. We're like, no, it's the song and the player, you know, and then the instrument they're using, you know, and yep. then how they're feeling that day, like oh, the vibe, all those things, like. Those come all way before they. you even put a microphone in front of them. You know, like that's just, it's all about trying to make people feel cool. And then, and then obviously the trust that they, that they gain, you know, that they, that you have to win from them. You know, that, that's a thing that you have to earn, you know? So, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, with, I mean, I think if the vibe is right, you're already on the right foot to getting something done. That's going to be cool. You know, you know that we talk about family on the yeah, show. Yeah. That's Can why, you, that's what I dig about it. Yeah. How does the recording world and, and the family world blend for you? What, what are your keys to success there? Um, you know what, or what mistakes have you made? Oh, well, that's, a, that's, well, that's one of the things I think is that communication. I think early on in, in, in my marriage, I've been married, uh, 14 years, somewhere around there. Yeah. But I think early on it was, you know, I was, I was so used to just going, Oh, I'm going to record. So I'm going to go do this. You know, and then eventually it's like, hey, well, you know, like what's going on? So I had, we had, I had to figure, okay, we need to just like figure out a schedule. Like what, what works best for us? You know, like, and then eventually we had kids, you know, and, and then, so we had, we had our first son. And then I think during that time I was taking a little bit more time off from doing like projects here, here at the shelter and all that. So it was easier to just kind of deal with, with the family life. But as, as my oldest son started growing up and then we had twins after that. It was like, okay, oh, so, man. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know what? One thing about having twins that I always tell, they always tell me, how is it? Is it like double, double? I go, you know, it's kind of exponential, but it's more like like the needles are always on 10. So it's either really, really hectic or really, really fun. And those really, really fun <laughs> times will overpower the hectic times any any time. It's like, it's cool. Now our twins are eight and, and, and they're boy girl. So you see the differences on the way they think, like, I've always known that women are smarter than men, but that just proved it to me the way my daughter is. And it's like, whoa, like that's pretty crazy, you know? But 
And then, you know, and then we have an 11 year old son. So it's like, there's a lot of that family thing. And a lot of it is, I think the way we deal with it as a family is like, okay, let's just make sure that, you know, the family structure is all good because then it's easy to say, Hey, you know what? I, uh, I was hoping to do this project that came in last minute. Like, are we cool with the house? And you know, Oh, well, yes or no, whatever. And, And then you figure it out. I think a lot of it is communication, just like, just like a record, you know, like you got to communicate and make sure everything's cool. And that to me is like the most important thing is that the communication is there because then it's easier to just like, you know, have the whole family structure kind of still intact. You know, I'm, you know, I mean, like, you know, you have kids, you, you know, they don't, your kids don't care what you do for a living. They just know that you're, you're their dad, you know, and they're like, right. oh, you know, you know, like in the end, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a famous musician or a recording engineer, you're still their dad. And they're like, you know, they, they have their, their things that you have to provide as a father or, or a parent that, that they need, you know? And I think that to me is like the, 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 the prime, the, or the, 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 you know, the, the first thing that I try to go for is to make sure my family structure is right. And, and sometimes it is difficult because, you know, I mean, we had these sessions with, uh, with an artist I was working with, with Herbie Hancock. And then they're like, Oh, Pharrell wants to do some stuff. I'm like, okay, but he wants to start at seven in the morning. And I'm like, what? And even Herbie was like, what? You know? So it's like, <laughs> he's on there. Like, can you do it? I was like, I'll make it happen. But just when is it? I hope it's not t- tomorrow. They're like, no, no, it'll be, you know, in a week or so. So, you know, I have to, you know, I have to go and make sure that my family's right. I was like, all right, babe. So not today. You got to take the kids to school, you know, and I'll, try, I'll pick them up, you know, whatever, whatever the deal we have, you know, I go, because I got to leave, you know, I live in LA, so traffic is horrible out here. So I had to leave before traffic to get over there by seven. And it was just, you know, it's, it's kind of a whole arrangement type thing. But I think, you know, a lot of it is about communication. And that, that to me is like the, the most important part, because then it's easier to, to deal with with our crazy kind of schedule that we have, you know, like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I like it. I mean, I, I love it. You know, I, I, I love what I do and I, and I love that I can make a living at what I do so that, you know, my kids are like, you know, they're always surrounded by music, you know, to me, that's, I don't know, I guess it is an important thing because I want, I, I know that music would broaden your, the way you think about things, whether you're a musician or not, you know, like it just, it's, it's a reason when like even our kids are in a school, it's a public school, but it's really based around the art. So they have a lot of like, you know, art programs and music programs. And, you know, one of, one of the guys who teaches there, his name is Ernie Duarte. He, he, he was my, one of my very first students when I taught at Cal State Dominguez and he teaches the media classes there. And my son is wow. now in his class, you know? Whoa. And there, and you know, it's funny, my dad, my, 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 my son came over and like, hey dad, we're using Motion 5. I'm like, what's that? Oh, you know, we're editing video with it. I was like, what? Oh, you got to teach me. So we were sitting down, you know, with our computers in front of us that, that you know, at, at, at home. And, and my wife was just looking and I was like, oh, look, there you guys are talking the lingo now, you know, like, what are you guys talking about? And she was just smiling. But I just I was like, oh, how did you do that? And, and the, here's an 11 year old kid teaching his dad how to like edit video, you know, because I, I have no clue about that. You know, I mean, I have some clue about it, you know. You know, but, you talked about uh, communication and, you know. It's always a work in progress. I think yes. anybody's anybody's marriage is a work in progress. Right, and right, yeah. You know, nobody is the poster child. No, of course not. But I think being transparent about what's going on, and as you say, communicative about schedule, and you know, I, I totally know what you're talking about. It's like, well, can you pick up the kids on this day because I got to do this? And right. Yeah. I think what it does when when you have to go through those motions of with your with your uh, your husband or your wife that you've got to justify to yourself before you even have that conversation right, because yeah. you you start to think okay I'm I'm now going to go to in 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 your case in my case we go to our wives and we say okay here's what here's what's going on I have this session I have this gig and here are the parameters but before you do that you obviously have a conversation in your head like okay is this worth taking on right. is it is it worth my time? Is it right. help my career? Is it help my family? Does right, it help yeah. my, my, my bottom line for mm-hmm. survival? Right. And I think that's always, um, so, so it, while the marriage thing and the kid thing is a challenge, it does bring about a little bit of discipline and structure to our world. Yeah. I think it, to me, I think it's, it's, it's made me way more focused as opposed to I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just do it. We'll just do it. And then eventually it's like, okay, so it's like, it's just like you said, like, is this worth doing? And if it is something that I feel is not, or I, I don't like to put like a worth on something, but I feel like, okay, is this something where like I can move it around? I always, you know, I always like, depending on who the client is, like 
when I work with Herbie, it's like, when do you need me there? I'll make it happen. Like I, I never, I've never told, I maybe told him no once or maybe twice, but it's been very little times in my career with him. I've been, I've been lucky enough to like work with him for the, about the past 15 years in different, you know, scenarios over, over, over time, you know, but I rarely tell him no. And my wife understands that who he is, you know, like, oh, it's Herbie. Yeah. Go for it. Like, you know, we'll make it work, you know, but if it's somebody else that not, and not to say that another, another musician or client that's not as famous as him is not worth the same. Cause I believe they're all worth the same. But then that's when I ask, Hey, can we meet maybe later on in the evening after I put my kids to bed? And I'll, and I'll be willing. And a lot, and a lot of times I, these musicians are most willing to do that. You know, sometimes I'll, they'll ask me like, Hey, when can you meet? And depending on what it is, I'll be like, Hey, well, I can meet you at 8 PM on Thursday. And they're like, sure, that works. So those are the kind of things that, yes, are, are actually going through my head and going like, okay, this, you know, because it's not Herbie ask, asking me to do something or wh- whoever it is that, you know, that, that I need to be there at a certain time that can't be changed. Because that's usually, that, that's usually the thing with Herbie is that it's not just him. It's a bunch of other people around him that have already set oh, yeah. up a time. You know, it's not like, you know, this is not just a one-man operation with him. Even even his, even his studio Within, within himself, there's, there's like three, four people there, you know? I mean, his studio manager, Brian McCullough is one of them, was like, he, I usually get the call from him like, hey, Herbie wants to call. He wants to do a session on this date. And they are, we already put in the, you know, the time for, you know, all these other people to come in. Can you do it? I'm like, yeah, I'll make it happen. You know, so I'm usually the one that gets the call at the end. <laughs> it's like, hey, everything's in place. Can you make it? And it's like, uh, sure, you know, like that's usually, and that's usually the case. I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm cool with that, you know, like, you know, I mean, when we were at Sunset Sound with him, we were... He's like, oh, we want to work Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday. Can you do it? I was like, yeah. So I have to make arrangements to like get my class covered and, you know, all those things, you know, because those are things that I don't want to miss out on. You know, I mean, it's I mean, it's kind of a historic thing now working with him, you know, and it's and it's really cool that I that he trusts me enough to work on his records. So, yeah, a lot of it is about, you know, communicating and making sure that all these other areas around your life are, are kind of set in place so that. You can go off and do the things that that are going to help you in your career. Yeah, it's a juggle, man. It is. It is. My, it's but, just constantly plates in the air, and but you know, I I mean, thinking about it now, I kind of like it. It, it. it doesn't get stiff or boring, you know. I mean, like, I, you know, I've I've never had a nine to five job in my life ever, so I don't even know what that feels like. You know, I, I, this is totally like kind of off the beaten path, but I'm I'm currently, you know, I'm a big mini series fan, and I'm uh-huh. watching. I just started watching the Americans about the the Soviet um, spies embedded in the U.S. during right, 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 the right. 80s, uh-huh. and as I watch it and I see, you know, I know it's it's you know it's Hollywood, right? Of but, course. But as I watch these FBI agents in in the show, I think, man, I'm glad I don't do that. <laughs> exactly, you know, like uh, that's I, so stressful. Yeah, and you know, my wife, you know, it, it's funny because like uh, recently I, I posted this little, this little video on, on, uh, on, on Instagram tagging the guys from Burl, you know, and my wife saw, it's like, and you know, I, I went over to my mother-in-law's house and she's like, she's like, do you see him, see him at work? And it's like, what a cool job he has. He's just sitting there like enjoying music and playing around with his console. And I'm like, you know, the console is my instrument. So of course I, I'm having fun with it. It's like, I have, that's just what I do. Like, I can't like, and it is cool, you know, like, yeah. It, it is a cool thing that we do, you know, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, I think it takes a lot of work for yep. sure, you know, and then and that's something I think that's what the young generation doesn't see. They just see, oh, those are the guys that are doing it. I'm going to be just like them. And they don't realize how much time they got to put into it. You know, like I, you know, like, like me, one of the things that, that I regretted for a long time was never interning at a studio. I never really did that. Me know? neither. Yeah. And, and I met this, this, this friend of mine named Robert Carranza. And, and, you know, he's, he's, he's a pretty big, big engineer. He's done a lot of big, huge, huge records, you know? And I, I, I remember talking to him, I was like, man, I should have done that. I was like, Hey bro, that's just your path. That's your path. You, you did it your way. And that's just the way you learned it. Like, you know, I almost kind of feel like happy that you did it that way. You, you had to take a different path to learn how to like get a cool kick from sound, you know, everybody else learned it the way they've been doing it for, you know, 20, 30 years. So it's like, you have your own way of doing it, you know, like, and I'm like, yeah, I guess. I go, but I also kind of feel like I lost. I goes, you didn't lose out on that. He's like, trust me. He goes, the runners never get treated right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's true. There is no one path. No, there isn't. Everybody has their own path, you know? And I, that's what makes it great. Everybody's, it's kind of like a fingerprint. 
You know, everybody yeah. has their own little stamp on things and, you know, it, it turns out really well that way. They just That's why it's cool, like, listening to your show and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't know Al Schmidt thought the same way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like that's kind of cool. Like I kind of you know you know and it's and I've met, I met him once through Herbie and I was like so in awe like whoa this all smell like and he's like hey and I was you know I was just when I was first starting working working with with Herbie's camp you know and I was like whoa this is cool like you know and then I just and I saw that video of of him you know right around AES time and and I ran into you know um, Steve Steve Genoa I saw him on the way into AES I was like hey. We just saw your video, man. That thing's great. And we stood there talking for like 15, 20 minutes. And, and I know he had a meeting because he was walking in pretty quick. And, and he, still made, I, he still made the time to sit there and talk to me. And I, I always think that's great when like, to me, those guys are really important. You know, like, whoa, man, they're, 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 the, they're like up in the atmosphere working with all those artists, you know, like, you know. And No, I, I can tell you firsthand, and he listens to the show. So, Steve, if you're listening... <laughs> Steve Jenowick is one of the nicest people yeah. I have, I truly have ever met. And I know that that is a cliche into itself, but no, he is a solid dude. Yeah. And uh, he has been nothing but super uh, forthcoming with just, you know, guests and uh, friendship and just warmth. And when you see somebody who works, with someone like Al on right, that level, right. yeah, come to the table with that level of just respect for everybody. Yeah, right off the bat, that that just speaks volumes yeah. about character to me. Yeah, me too. And and I, I dig that. Those you know, those are the people that I like. Like you know, you feel good being around with because not you know we we know not everybody in the industry is the same way. Some people are like that, and that and that's fine. That's just their way of doing of being, you know. But like the guys like that, I'm like man, well, this is cool. Like you know, I never thought. They, they thought that way. And, and, you know, especially I think for me, sometimes it's a surprise because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do the traditional way of, of, you know, like, oh, you know, you become a runner and then you become, you know, the, you know, an assistant and a staff engineer and you kind of work your way up. I never did that. It was just like, you know, I started at 19 and I'm 44 and I'm Herbie Hancock's engineer. And I was like, well, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> because you, you kept showing up. Yeah, I guess so, you know. Yeah, you that, kept you know, showing yeah. up to the right things. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, that might yeah, might be it. I mean, you know, like I just I just dig I just dig the studio, you know. I like I to me it's like it's my instrument like I said, you know. We we were we were in a session along a few maybe a few few months back and and one of the producers that was working with us was like, you know, "Hey, can you mic this drum set up?" And I was like, "Okay, can I drum, uh, told the drummer, "Can you play?" He's like, "What do you need to hear him play for?" I go, "Cuz I don't know what he sounds like. I've never worked with him before." So he just thought it was odd, and the next day we came in, and Herbie goes, "Hey, you know they, the the you know the producer was kind of tripping out on you." I was like, "Why? Did I do something wrong?" He said, "No, he was just kind of amazed that that you had to like had to hear the drummer to know to know what mics you were gonna put on on him." Well, it's not the, what mics; it was more like we're always gonna play some. I go, "I have a general idea, but just by the way he plays, it's gonna it's gonna make me reactive." It's kind of like I go, "Herbie, I go, I see you, and I see you build out chords, and you'll sit there for." 20, 30 minutes making, you know, the, the voicing of that chord, right? It's kind of, that's kind of my way of voicing things. Like, you know, I have to kind of like play around with the sound until it's right. And then I'm trying to get that energy from the room into the speakers. Although I know it's not going to sound exactly like that, but that's what I'm trying to do. So, you know, I think a lot of it is about that. And I, and I, and, and I think a lot of it has been because Herbie's been encouraging of that, like throughout my career with him. It's like, oh yeah, so... Let's all be creative in here. You know, you're not just going to be the technical guy. Say, bring the volume up or bring it down, you know. And that that's that to me, you know, I'll be honest from I've learned more from Herbie about recording than I have from any engineer or producer I've ever worked with. There's because, I bet. yeah, because he's first of all, you have the access to a guy like that and you're like, whoa. But second of all, I think a lot of it is because w w one key thing about him is that they don't believe in the word you like can't or I can't do this or no. It's like there always has to be a solution or a way to do something, you know? And that's that's what I really learned from him about, like, if we can't do it, then let's figure out a way to do it. If this keyboard can only play one voice, we're going to figure out how to make it play two voices, you know? And that's that's what led to, you know, poly polyphonic synths because he was trying to do it, you know? Music and recording in in and of itself can be a, a form of problem solving yeah. and real... Um, something that really keeps the brain active. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Big time, you know, and, and he's, you know, I think he's what, 75 and he's like, 
he's super sharp, always on top of things and has us on our, you know, he's always on our toes about like, oh, wait a minute, we should anticipate this because I know he's going to ask us this other thing and we have to make sure it's cool, you know, like, you know, and then there's times when it's not like that. It's kind of more free, free flowing and we get to, you know, just be a little bit more laid back, you know, but and, and not that it's ever been super intense with him. It's never like that. But I think sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you just kind of have to like, as an engineer, you always kind of have to like, you know, take those cues from people, you know, like that, that that's a big thing that's that you learn over time. It's hard to do that. Well, I saved some of the harder questions for last. The discussion of money. Uh, and I'll just ask you straight up. Are, are you saving for retirement? I am. But and I'll be honest, because of the school job, you know, that's kind of like, you know, we have our own little 401k and, you know, there's money. And I was like, oh, there's that much money in there already? That's kind of cool. I probably would have saved. I would have spent that on gear already. I would have spent that on gear. That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm. I'm. You know, it's it's funny that you know, like I was talking to a friend the other day. I was like, you know what? I'm addicted to gear, man. Like I'll take the gear before the beer any day of the week. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> gear before the beer. You know, the the money questions are are one thing, but the the retirement thing I think has come up and maybe I, it's a sense of me feeling vulnerable in I'm now 47 and mm-hmm. I'm starting to go oh wow 50s like not too far away right, and then I start right. thinking oh no you know there's what if there comes a day where I, I can't do this or what if there comes a day where nobody's going to hire me and then I start to think oh retirement and then I see all these articles you know left and right about the number of Americans who have not been saving yeah. And that's when I get paranoid. And yeah. so that, that's the drum that I've been beating lately. Is I, I was talking with a, a family member the other day, and I'm like, you got to get on saving now. Yeah. You know, my my, my wife, I'll be honest, she's way better of it, about it than I am. She's, she's the one who's kind of taught me, you know, like, and directly taught me how to save, you know. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, she left... Southern California to to go live in the Bay Area because she went to school up there. She went to Santa Cruz to get her undergrad and then went and got her her graduate degree at Berkeley. So she was gone for a period of about ten years living up north. So she was kind of on her own. And I think it's all it's also in her personality. She's real like that's what I love about her that she's kind of like way more focused than I am about things and you know about making sure you know the whole family structure is all cool. Like they, like I always tell like you know people go, man, your kids are so, so good. And I was like, hey, man, I'm just a cheerleader. That's the real teacher right there. Like, I just, I just sit on the sidelines. I go, yeah, you need backup. I'll come in, you know, like that, that's, that's <laughs> what I feel about my wife. I think she goes, no, but we're both doing it. I was like, yeah, but like, I always feel like I, I'm taking your, your lead on things, you know, and she's, she's been most definitely better about, about teaching me to do those things. And, and, and in the past few years, I've, it's most definitely been, been things that I've been trying to cover more. Like, okay, I shouldn't, all this money I made on this project, I probably shouldn't spend it all on gear or, or you know, I usually do house gear where I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't just spend the, what I'm going to spend on gear. Just save some of it for like, you know, whatever might might happen, you know, you, you never know when, you know, something's going to bust and then you're going to have to get it fixed and you just spend, you know, oh, I just bought a bunch of burrow converters, but I got no speakers. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I don't know why it is, but money management, when you mix it with uh, recording gear, it's like oil and water. It is, but you know, it's it's funny. Like some part of me like tries to not look at it that way and go, oh, it's an investment because, you know, I, w- I always have friends. I have friends really into like, you know, hot rodding his cars. He's like, and and I tell him, why do you spend all that money on that, man? He's like, why do you spend money on gear? I'm like, oh, yeah, huh? But I go, yeah, but do you make money back on your on racing? He's on no. He's like, well, at least I try to make some money back on my gear, you know? Like, you know, it, it, there was times I was like, I'm just going to spend it all on gear and get gear, get gear. And I was like, and I'm, and I'm still kind of, you know, I always kind of like put that little bit amount of money so I can do that and go buy some gears. Because I, you know, like, and then like there'll be times when I don't buy anything for a while, but then I'll be like, oh, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff. And I now I kind of go, okay, what do I need? What do I really need? Like, do I really need those extra set of mics? Well, they would be cool. But maybe I want to buy, you know, something else. You know, I was just talking to Mike, who's in the room. I was like, I think I want to buy this, this 10-channel Aurora side card. You know, like, I want to buy that. I, oh, my God, it's 20 grand. I didn't know it was 20 grand. <laughs> He's like, well, that's a car, dude. I was like, yeah. And there's, a, there's that part in my mind that goes, damn, just keep the car alive and you can buy it. You can, you, can, you know, like, my car's in fairly decent, decent shape, but I'm like going, man. Oh, I want to buy that. I want to buy that. You know, so there's those things like, do I need it? Do I not need it? Man, it'd be great if I had it. <laughs> you know, so gear can be like drugs. Oh man, tell me about it. It's like, oh, 
Except, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you still feel good. <laughs> well, at least physically you feel good. <laughs> I don't know about mental. You're like, oh, man, this should I have spent that much money on that? <laughs> well, Cesar, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with me. No, thank you, man. I enjoyed being on the show, and it's an honor to be on it. All right, man. Will you take care? And uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. All right, Matt. Talk to you soon. Cesar Mejia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Cesar on. And... Of course, great to have you tuning in to listen. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So, of course, we have to thank everybody, as we always do. So, let's thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and our sponsors, Lawton Audio, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and GearSluts.com. Appreciate the time you take to listen. And as always, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>